0: Welcome to In Residence, Town Hall Conversations with Steve Scher. Ramida Navai is a foreign affairs journalist. Her book is City of Lies, Love, Sex, Death, and the Search for Truth in Tehran. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you for having me. We're in the cloakroom at Town Hall because I'm experimenting with different rooms. I think folks can maybe hear that uh, Joshua Roman is practicing for a concert tonight. And I think you can hear the classical music coming over the mics. Could people hear this in Tehran, this kind of music in Tehran?
1: Yes, you know what's just happened in Tehran. Um, they are in the midst, I believe, of allowing opera, which is a first.
0: What, did something change?
1: Yes, so women's voices, solo voices, um, has usually a band. So I have seen women singing, but they're part of a choir. But a woman solo, singing solo on her own, has never been acceptable in the Islamic regime. So this is a big thing to allow opera. So, I guess this tells you that culturally, Rouhani has been making some headway. Small uh, changes.
0: Western opera, Iranian opera. What kind of opera?
1: Western. Really? Yeah.
0: How interesting. Yes. Well, that yes.
1: I, uh, th- 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 there was I was reading a great article about it, and it was about. Um, the censors coming in to watch, watch, to listen, listen to the opera, because they'd been banning it without having listened to it, and I don't think they understood it. And they listened to it, and they were really quite moved.
0: All right, so what does that tell you about this, this, this city of lies, the nation that you're, that you're writing about?
1: It tells me that it's such a mixed up, complicated, contradictory place, that just when you think you understand it, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it tells me that the senses are, are opening up to stuff, and they are opening up. I think culturally there seems to be some movement. Who knows it will, if it will go get anywhere, go anywhere.
0: So, let's see, Tehran was, what did I read? Three million people in 1970, 12 million people today. It's a city that's got rich people, it's got poor people, it's yeah. got traffic. It's got some parks. City of Lies, what, what makes it any different from any modern American, modern European city in terms of the duality, the duplicities?
1: You're right. On one hand, it's really a and sophisticated... What makes it different is the laws and the regulations and society's laws that govern ordinary Iranians. And it's not that Iranians are congenital liars. I think it's a very human reaction they've had. And I think anybody, any peoples of the world would react in the same way and would lie in the same way. So it's just lying in order to live the life that you want to live. It's just lying to to get past the system.
0: We might have seen similar actions in a repressive regime behind the Iron Curtain during the fascist era in Nazi Germany. People figure out ways to put up a front and then live differently behind that front.
1: Exactly. And for me, what's really interesting about countries like Iran is that everything is really intensified So friendships, love, how you live, sex, how you break the law, there's so much more at stake. So everything is just, yeah, much more intense and has so much more meaning.
0: Did you quote a woman, or you talked about a woman, actually one of the characters in your book, a woman who left in the end because she was just fed up with what her yoga studio was shut down? Yeah. And she moved to London, right? Yes. And what did she find there?
1: So many of her friends had fled at the time of the revolution. She hadn't. Um, and she lived in half regret. Why didn't I leave, she thought. All these friends of mine in L.A. and New York and London and Paris are having this amazing liberal life with all kind of the, you know, Western fantasies of freedom and self-expression and there she is in her fitness studio having a dance class and it's it's closed down it's raided by the morality police and they're told that their moves are very lascivious it's a belly dancing class and it's that what they're doing is immoral and it's promoting lesbianism and of course it's she's outraged and then this you know she's unlucky and that can happen in Tehran you can live your great life and party and be lucky and nothing happened to you or you, your parties can get busted and your dance class can get busted and that's what happened to her so she decides that's it I've had it with this country I'm going back and you know what the pull was too great she went back and she didn't have the, the home comforts in London she missed that intensity
0: she missed the intensity
1: she did and she missed the good life that she had she missed the craziness and it, she realised it's just in her blood and she she returned
0: hmm. Where were you born?
1: In Tehran.
0: And how old were you when you left?
1: So I traveled between the two countries, but the last time I really lived there, I was five, and I lived there until I was six, and that's when the revolution happened. So actually, my mother and I, and my brother, uh, flew over to Tehran, my dad was living there at the time, to start a new life with him in Tehran, and that was Black Friday when we flew over. (laughs) And <laughs> not the best day to be flying back to a country no. to start your, your life. That was the day that protesters got shot. And really, the rumblings of revolution began.
0: Do you feel a pull? I mean, you were pretty young and you grew up most of your life in, in London, right? Or in the UK.
1: I like the pretty young comment. Not not that young anymore. <laughs> um, God, absolutely do I feel a pull. It's in my blood. It is. I can't explain it. It's really hard to explain because I'm... I'm not a jingoistic person. Patriotism scares me, so it's, it's nothing to do with that. It's something much more intrinsic, that it just feels like it's, it's in my blood. So when I land there, you know, when I smell the air and I see the people, I feel that part of me is home. I feel complete. Hmm. It's hard to explain.
0: No. It's
1: such a gut feeling. And, it's, and it, it's also on a really visual level, you know. So I remember the first time that I returned to Iran after over 20-odd 20, 20 years. Was it 25 years? I can't remember. And I was blown away by how everybody looked like me and my brother and my mom and my dad and my uncles and my aunties. And it was like being at a great big family gathering. It was That's like, great. Yeah, it was a very strange sensation.
0: Could you see yourself living there? I mean, in in the present situation. I mean, could you see yourself being one of the people that would have to adopt a facade in order to function but have the intensity of of life underground?
1: I did live there, yes. I lived that life. You were a Tehran
0: correspondent for two years. Yeah, three years. Three years. So
1: I lived that life for three years and I've been traveling back and forth for the last 11 years. I could see myself living there again easily.
0: Yeah, you feel your roots, huh?
1: I, I really do, yes. And, you know, look... It's, there there is an underbelly, there is an underground, there is a dark side, as with every city in the world. It's also a great city to live in. If you have a little bit of money, you know, I mean, listen, I'm a journalist, you know, we don't earn a fortune. (laughs) But you can live a comfortable life on an ordinary wage in Tehran.
0: It's just you have to make the choice.
1: Yes, on a Western wage, by the way, I say that and I'm reminded of all the conversations I have when I'm there. With people who are struggling, sanctions have really crippled the country. So I'm in a very lucky position. Um, You know, a a lot of, God, most Iranians, not a lot, most Iranians that I spoke to last year, I spent five months there last year, have two or more jobs.
0: Oh, yeah. And those are the ones that are working at all, right?
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Ramida Navai's book is. City of Lies, Love, Sex, Death, and the Search for Truth in Tehran. Well, I'm going to get to love sex. Let's, let me talk about death, though, for a minute. These, the reason it's so intense is because are, these are real choices. People could face real hardships, prison or execution, for some of the things they're doing. Yes. What? Why do they do it? They have to. They're, these are the lives they're living. How would they otherwise not be able to live these lives?
1: Well, first of all, I mean... <laughs> I guess it sounds maybe more dramatic than it is because when you live there, you get used to breaking the rules and you get used to working the system. Yeah. So you, you, know, you, you come to know how to work the system and how to tread that fine line between staying on the right side of the law and getting in trouble, getting caught, basically. Do you
0: out. have an example of that? People you know? People you talk to?
1: Yeah, so you can get in a lot of trouble for being caught Drinking, drugs, sex, parties. But everybody I know... okay that's an exaggeration. Nearly everybody I know... (laughs) um, ..will have parties, will drink alcohol, will have sex before marriage without fear of being caught. And some of them have been caught. And they know what to do when they are caught. So, for example, you know... That you sometimes, in some situations, can pay your way out of it, for example. So, executions are quite rare when it comes to cr- crimes of immorality. Most people who are executed um, are executed for drug smuggling or politics. So, really, political dissidents are the ones that are taking huge risks.
0: You, oh, is that right? Even today.
1: Even today, yes.
0: Um, and and of course, in this gray area, right? Those who we see as political dissidents also have their own sometimes uh, baggage that they carry with them, right? Who was the was it Musavi?
1: Yep. So Musavi and Karubi are still under house arrest.
0: They were one of the leaders of, or they seem to be one of the people at the forefront of the revolution. Yeah. The, the, the last uprising. I should yeah, say. Yeah. The, the green movement.
1: Yeah. yeah country's most well-known political prisoners now and reformists um, who spearheaded the Green Movement, who really spearheaded the 2009 protests. And that just tells you about little something about the Islamic regime and what his, it has become because these are men who are very much part of the system, who certainly Mousavi, who fought for the revolution, was very close to the, the, the men in power, and he increasingly became disillusioned with it, and now the system has turned against him.
0: Signed death warrants for his own enemies, right, or people that were seen as enemies of the revolution back when he was in the favorite class.
1: Yes, so uh, it's interesting because I've spoken to quite a few reformists about this and they claim, of course, that he didn't know about the mass killings in the 1980s when thousands of Mujahideen political prisoners, that were mostly Mujahideen... Uh, Some
0: communists too, is that Exactly,
1: exactly. So political prisoners in, in... It was mainly 1988 when the killings happened and Mousavi was then Prime Minister. When these killings did happen, and reformists and and he has even spoken about it and he has said, and reformists close to him say that he didn't know what was going on, but whether he did or he didn't, you're right. he was a man in power at the time
0: you, you said so, that it reveals that what the change has happened to the regime, so what is that change?
1: Many of the old original revolutionaries have grown distant from the system, have grown disillusioned with the system. And the system has started to eat its own. They've been put under house arrest. They've been imprisoned. It's been a slow transformative process.
0: Who are those people that still are uh, willing to eat their own? Who are those people?
1: Hardliners. Some of them are pragmatists. But usually, they're the hardliners.
0: Are they also people who live a double life in the City of Lies? Some of them,
1: yes. I spoke to some of them.
0: Yeah, you, you, you read about some who, <laughs> yes. who's the cleric. Wasn't there a, a hardline cleric who, yes. who likes to get with women?
1: Yes. Gives yes. them
0: presents, gives them frilly objects. Yes. Wants them to pray while he's having sex with them.
1: Yes, he pays, pays for sex. Which and is illegal,
0: right?
1: Well, so what he does, actually, it's he, he performs a temporary marriage. Which is called a sireh in Persian. So temporary marriage is—it's I, I, one of my favourite things. I think in, in <laughs> Shia Islam, it's a particularly Shia phenomenon, and you can be married for five minutes to ninety-nine years. I, I'm maybe less than five minutes. I'm not sure. <laughs> so that's how
0: you can make it legitimate, huh?
1: Exactly. It's a quickie with an Islamic seal of appro- approval, state-sanctioned quickie.
0: Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but but you. So political prisoners, but, um, so you take us down, is it Vali Asur Street? Yes. Uh, Layla, and I understand these are composites. You meet many people, you have a composite, but Layla, Mm -hmm. that character lost her life, was executed, or at least one of the composites that made up that character was executed for her ways.
1: Yes. So, well, okay, not all of the characters were composite characters. Oh, is that right? No. Where they were composite characters was where I had to protect people's identities. So while I know their whole stories, some of the characters, some of the people I met didn't want me to reveal all the details of their stories. So there would be gaps and we would agree together that, okay, where there is this gap in your story, because you're worried that if you reveal X, Y, or Z, you know the authorities will know who you are, or your mother will recognise you. Let's talk to somebody else in the same situation. So sometimes they themselves would find me somebody to interview. So it's all real testimony. But yes, yeah, sometimes I've melded that testimony together. The story of Layla is based really on one person, But you're right, there's another story that I've woven in, which is the story of a woman who was executed in 2001. So the real Layla is alive. Um, But there was another woman who got caught making porn films. Um, And it is, as I wrote in the book, that is how she got caught. She was hung? The real woman was actually stoned to death. Oh. And that was the last one of the last officially recorded stonings. There has been no officially recorded stoning in Evan in Tehran, Evan prison in Tehran since 2001. So I explain that's why in the story I say that Leila got hanged um, because nobody has got stoned since 2001 officially in Tehran.
0: So what does that tell you about where the country's going?
1: Well, there's there's an interesting movement against stoning and capital punishment in Iran. It's, it's in its early phases. Um, and there are human rights movements in Iran. I think, personally, one of the most interesting uh, kind of counter-movements that's happening there is the feminist groups.
0: Exhibited by uh, being allowed to sing in operas? I mean, is that part of the, an opening up?
1: Yes, that is part of an opening up. And there who are, are many. The feminist groups? They, they, they are the bravest, most hero, heroic Iranians that I have met. Hmm. Young girls and women who are in and out of prison, who turn up to protest peacefully, holding placards, demanding equal inheritance rights, equal divorce rights No more than that. And they do amazing work. They really, really do. And the Green Movement is all but dead. The reform reformists have pretty much been crushed. But the feminist groups, these women, are still going strong. It's a small, small, small movement. But they're very vocal.
0: I was going to ask you how, how Iranians feel about the, their economic future, which is wrapped up in how you feel about living in a city. But So how do those women feel about their economic future I mean do they feel that they're making some progress
1: well there's there's that's an interesting question because there's a real split between how people feel about human rights and women's rights and how people feel about the state of the economy of the country and their politics so most Iranians you speak to say that worrying about human rights is a luxury when they are worrying about getting bread on the table so Iranians generally seem quite disengaged from matters that seem more trivial to them than matters of economic survival. So they seem pretty disengaged from human rights and women's rights, and they say, listen, let's just solve the economy first. Let's start trying to really live here instead of survive, and then we'll fix women's issues and human rights issues. So there is a slight disconnect going on, and that's because the country has been crippled economically after Ahmadinejad screwed up the the government.
0: Not just uh, the sanctions, also not says- just the
1: sanctions. Ahmadinejad left the country uh, in debt. You know, the, the the pound against the the the, the dollar against the rial were the, the lowest it's ever been. And sanctions have really crippled the country as well. Sanctions have had a devastating effect on people.
0: Hmm. Does that, how does that make people act in terms of the duplicity that we've been talking about, that, that crushing sense of their future, that make them even more uh, likely to be part of a city of lies?
1: No more nor less, because I think it's the general oppressive nature of the regime that causes them to lie in order to be true to themselves.
0: Yeah. You know, you said, you quoted, I don't know this rapper, Hitchkus, Hitchcuss. Yes. Or is he Iranian?
1: Yes. Great rapper.
0: Is that allowed in Iran?
1: You have to, when you release any song, you have to have your lyrics checked by the Ministry of Islam- Islamic Culture and Guidance. And they censor your your lyrics, and he has he's released songs that have not been censored.
0: Hmm. So a city that tempts you till it saps your soul. First of all, that passed the the uh, the censors, huh? I guess they would. See I, I it.
1: have a feeling he didn't pass that song <laughs> through, <laughs> through the censors, and I believe he's no longer living in Iran, uh. and I imagine that's why. So he there, there there's there's some great rap. In Iran, and it's a little bit like you know the social rap that started in America was like in the is it the 1980s with kind of Grandmaster Flash and the Mm -hmm. Furious Five and and the message exactly that is really happening in Iran at the moment social commentary so really rap that's quite ironic and sarcastic and damning of what's happening socially so Hitchcass he talks about He talks about the drugs and he's talked about prostitutes and how this really is a city that's steeped in inequality and problems.
0: Huh. Yeah, and yet he's, well, as you said, he left. (laughs) He may have left. What does that mean to you, a city that tempts you till it saps your soul?
1: God, it means that there's everything in Tehran and there's so much to lose. And so many people have lost so much. And just just drugs, for example. So we have one of the highest rates of drug addiction in the world. I think official figures are between one and three million. I think there was an official pretty recently who said there were three million drug addicts in the country. Interestingly enough, crystal meth has just overtaken heroin to become the second most popular drug after opium.
0: Yeah. Made in the country?
1: Increasingly. More and more of it is being made in the country. So a few years ago, the UN released numbers of crystal meth kitchens um, that were busted by the state. And those numbers have tripled in the last few years. More and more crystal meth kitchens are springing up in Tehran. And, you know, let's not forget Iran is right next door to Afghanistan. So there's been that flow of heroin and opium into the country for, for, for decades now.
0: What does the regime say when they confront drugs and meth labs and they they know that there are people who are gay, they know that there are people who are engaged in sex before marriage? What is the regime's, after all these years,
1: well, what's their comment? Well, here's, here's another contradictory side of the Islamic regime. So when it comes to drugs, you know... The regime has had some pretty liberal drug rehab, uh, pretty liberal approaches to drug rehabilitation. Oh, is that right? Yeah, so recently they've opened up a crystal meth rehabilitation center. In downtown, in South Tehran, I've been to methadone clinics where they've had needle exchanges, where they've given out out, uh, condoms to prostitutes. And there are public awareness campaigns about drugs. So they can be pretty open in discussing drugs in in, in a non-punitive way. It can be quite surprising.
0: Hmm. Sex is their big bugaboo. Yes,
1: yes. Yes, uh, God, yeah, the Islamic Republic can seem pretty much obsessed with sex. <laughs> there were lots of fat was about it, people forever discussing how you should have it, who you can have it with. But what I've noticed is, is, yeah, some kind of sexual awakening happening among the young. And when I say young, I mean late teens, early 20s, that generation... Something's changing.
0: What is, what is it?
1: That they are pushing boundaries, that they are having sex outside marriage um, and it's becoming a little bit more acceptable. It's still pretty unacceptable in most walks of life in Iran to have sex before marriage, but it's very, very slowly changing.
0: And then they have to have particular kinds of sex in order for them to justify it to themselves or their parents?
1: Well, this is interesting. So I did speak to girls from religious households where they can't even be seen talking to a boy that they're not related to. It's just seen as really wrong. It's seen as really bad. And, of course, young people will be young people the world over. And there are ways that they can get around this. So they told me about the types of sex that they have. One of the types, it's called if you translate it literally is thigh sex so you can imagine what that is I won't describe (laughs) but also uh, Iranians joke the whole time that Iran must be the anal sex capital of the world so many girls I met had had anal sex so they kept the hymens intact so they were still virgins when they married and even if you end up having sex before marriage, there are ways you can fix that as well. If you are from you know, the type of, type of family that you, you know, you're gonna bring shame on your family if you're caught on your wedding night not being a virgin, there are doctors who sew up hymens. And there are virginity kits actually that you can, I've just found about, out about this last year, that you can buy made in China virginity kits at the bazaar. And they're these kits, and they're little capsules that you insert, and the capsules have got uh, red liquid in them. Ingenious. I mean, the, the, the
0: ingenious hypocrisy that we, enco- yeah, that we encounter. I mean, you know, on,
1: on one hand, hypocrisy, I guess. Maybe I like to see it as resilience. Survival. Survival, adaptability. Well, I,
0: I guess by the, I guess the hip- ingenious hypocrisy, I guess the hypocrisy part is the regime, which knows these things are going on but cannot accept it yeah. yeah
1: and i may i i imagine in time it will have to accept it
0: why why do you i mean because that's the way of the world that eventually regimes
1: <laughs> i think liberalize so. i i think i think reform will come slowly because it has to because there's such a large population youthful population, large population of young people. I think it will happen eventually, very slowly, it will be a slow process, and what I think is interesting, and this is what I've noticed in the last 11 years of, of working, living, reporting there, is that that's what most Iranians told me they want. They don't want outside intervention. They don't want revolution. They don't want big change. They're really scared of that. They already tried. Look what happened in 2009. The protests got got crushed, brutally crushed. And now they look around them and they see Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, and they're scared of a bloodbath. They don't want that. They really don't want that. They're resigned to the fact that change has got to come from within, and it's got to come slowly.
0: Can I ask you about your um, reporting? Yes. I was looking at your documentary work for. Uh, Unreported world. Yes, Um, I'm going to just list a few of these off. Malaysian slaves. You reported on Malaysian slaves uh, in uh, workers' rights being violated in Chongqing. I think that's how you say that city's name.
1: Chongqing. Chongqing.
0: Mm. Uh, Bangladesh drownings, organ sales in South Africa, child brides in Nigeria, honor killings in Turkey, Uh, El Salvador youth gangs. You were reporting on that before we saw the ramifications of those youth gangs with all the kids that are coming over the borders now. And you also uh, reported on uh, middle-class homeless in the US right after the, uh, after the fall. What takes you to the dangerous and the bleak places?
1: God, always in the dangerous and bleak places, you, you meet the, the bravest of people. You hear the most positive of stories. You see real light. In these places, always. I never leave any of these places hopeless or negative. I always leave these places full of hope for humanity, always. And always with a sense that, okay, maybe nothing will change, but I have given somebody a voice, you know, somebody that has to live in this situation day in, day out, in fear. And finally, they've been given a chance to speak, to tell somebody. Their story. And it's really interesting. You know, when I first started journalism, my career, talking to people about horrific things that had happened to them, I thought, how are people going to talk to me? You know, how can they possibly tell me about a gang rape or the fact that they think they might be killed any day now by their neighbours or by gangs or by the government? And I realized pretty, pretty quickly that for some people who feel so powerless, that's all they've got. All they've got is, is their testimony and their stories. And if you never get a chance to tell that to anybody, when somebody turns up and says, I want to listen. And not, you know, not I'm Ramita, I'm from unreported world. You know, it's a real human thing for me. Above all, I'm a journalist. I never sit there representing an organization and I never want to be the person that sits there representing an organization. It's a real human thing. you know Tell me your story. let's see what we can do with this.
0: Do you think journalism is better because there's so many independent thinking people working in it these days, as opposed to being only represented by the large institutions? Yes I, I do I do. Too. I do too.
1: yeah and I, I think it. I think freelancers as well, you know, getting out there, not not having to deal with a big corporation with their... And let's face it, you know, you know the media organisation, whatever media organisation you work for, you know the pressures that they're under. You know what's acceptable to them. You know their politics. And it it does so often boil down to politics and I think there are amazing young journalists coming up now who are unencumbered of that who you know are free operators and are just simply gathering testimony
0: yeah yeah of course they put themselves in danger even more so yeah. right as we've seen in yes. Syria yeah and Iraq
1: with no protection yeah. and with no support and no help
0: you covered Syria you got an Emmy for your frontline work what uh, where are we now in the world of Assad and the Syrian uprising and ISIL?
1: I think what's happened in Syria, I mean, it goes without saying. It's obviously an absolute tragedy, and I'll tell you why I think it's a tragedy, not because of the obvious, which it is, but because, you know, when I covered it, it was really early on in the uprising. Um, 2011. Yeah. So I think it began in, was it February? And I was there September, October. And it's been a self-fulfilling prophecy for Assad. Assad at the time said, these are terrorists. They were not terrorists, I can tell you that now. They were ordinary Syrians, like me and you, you know. And the men that I met were the men that formed the Free Syrian Army. These were the men that did take up arms, that became the rebels. And they were not, they were ordinary guys. One of them was a law student, one of them had an internet cafe. You know, one of them had a shoe factory. Most of them are now dead. Hmm. They'd never handled weapons before. And the world didn't know what to do. I don't have the answer. I don't know what the world should have done. But now, it's, look what happened. It's too late. They left it too late.
0: Yeah, you can see why the Iranians, the citizens of Iran, are looking around thinking, we don't want another, more chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What's your next assignment?
1: <laughs> I cannot wait to get back to the field. I'm itching to get to get back to reporting. It's it's the thing that I love most in the world, I think. And I'm I'm cooking up some some good stories. Yeah, I want to get some stories out.
0: C- can I ask you a question about home? You kind of answered this and I could just pluck it but um from the from the tape, but let me just ask you this. Uh Most broadly, answer any way you want. Where are you home?
1: I only feel complete if I'm in London and Tehran. I'm a Londoner at heart. I'm a Londoner through and through. What does that mean? God, that means... What does that mean, being a Londoner? London is full of people like me.
0: From all over the world.
1: Exactly. That's why if you or an exile, or a refugee, or foreign, or a visitor. London embraces you, it's yours, it belongs to you, it's our city. And that's what makes London so bloody fabulous. But there's that part of me that is in Iran and will always be in Iran. And I will only ever feel complete if I can have that, just that little bit, just that little, tiny little corner of Tehran. I don't have to live there. But as long as I can visit every now and again, then I feel complete.
0: What are you visiting? I mean, is it a tree in a yard? Is it the smell? You said it was visual. What is it?
1: God, it's the land, the smell, the people, the food, the humor, the bitching, the moaning, (laughs) the warmth, the generosity, the drama, the craziness, the love. The terrible booze. <laughs> it's everything.
0: Bathtub gin, there, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, then here. So I, I was going to ask you this earlier, but I'll ask it at the end. What kind of humor do you find in Tehran? God,
1: you know, they can be quite sarcastic. They can be very dry. They're great at one-liners, and and not unlike the British, actually. They've got quite a potty sense of humor as well. Just naughty words can just set them off, which I guess is quite a British thing. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink.
0: And that still, that still thrives in in The City of Lies.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, humor is based on that in a lot of ways, isn't it?
1: Oh, God. I, I belly laugh when I'm there. Is there? Yes. right? Yes. Yes. I, there's nothing I love more than... Being with a bunch of Iranians and hearing them, hearing the repartee and their one-liners and hearing them rib each other and tear each other to pieces and then say rude jokes, very rude jokes. It'll get everybody on the floor. It's a great feeling.
0: Huh. Gallows humor, is that part of it?
1: Gallows humor, not so much actually. Maybe that's too close to the bone. Maybe that will come.
0: But yeah. now it's about... Making fun of the absurdity of the situation.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And being able to.
1: Yes, and lots of jokes about sex,
0: of yeah. course. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you're forbidden, that's where you're yeah, going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ramita Navai is a foreign affairs journalist. Her book is City of Lies, Love, Sex, Death, and the Search for Truth in Tehran. I appreciate you talking to me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Zen Residence, Town Hall Conversations. I'm Steve Sherwood.